The scenery was very beautiful. But I did not see the Great Wall of China. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Oh, yeah, baby, Yang Yang Lai Wei. Matt, who was Yang? Who was Yang? We're going to get to this later on. Okay. He's one of the many birthday boys. I love a birthday boy, me. Well, let's spoil it. He was a Chinese taikonaut. Taikonaut. That's so much cooler. Spelt T-A-I-K-O-naut. You hang yuans. Space navigator. Chinese for space navigator. It's quite cool, isn't it? Space navigator. Dreamweaver. <laughs> Dream chaser. <laughs> right. <laughs> Big shout out to our man, Matt Berry. Uh, yeah, yeah legend. legend. Um, well, of course you can't see the Great Wall of China from space, and there's quite a few reasons why you can't. Tell me why. The, the wall itself is built from the rock and the landscape that surrounds the wall, so it's kind of the same sort of colour. So okay. even from low Earth orbit from the International Space Station, if you've got like a camera with a 180 millimetre lens, and those photographers out there yeah. will know that that's, that's, that's a pretty decent lens, you can just about take a picture and just about see the wall if you look very, very carefully. Right. There was another Chinese uh, taikonaut who took a picture with a 400mm lens. So that, that's like the ones that you see at football matches, those big white ones. And um, uh-huh. and that was greeted with much joy in China because you could see the wall, although Chow himself was pretty uncertain that you could. <laughs> so, well... It's an interesting thing, this, isn't it? Because, you know, how many things do people go, oh, it's visible, it's so big, it's visible from space. But no, is well, it? it? No. I mean, if you need a massive telephoto lens to pick it up, then it's cheating yeah. a bit, isn't well, it? Well, radar can pick it up because radar isn't fooled by the colour. So radar you can you mm. can use to see the Great Wall of China from space. And it does show up yeah. quite well because it's such a – because it's obviously an unnatural line in the landscape. Um uh, but the pyramids you can see from the International Space Station, apparently, and there's the odd other thing. But seeing anything from the moon, which is actually where it all started, people could say, yeah, you could see the Great Wall of China from the moon. It's so big. It's like absolutely no no chance. Was that Trump or, or <laughs> Boris who said that? <laughs> we'll get on to Trump in a little bit. I'm actually going to defend Trump. I know this is going to sound ridiculous. But anyway, I've got um, a quote by Alan Bean, a much a much more sensible and loving person than Donald Trump. Absolutely. Uh, uh, yeah, legend. Um, God rest his soul. And he says, the only thing you can see from the moon is a beautiful sphere, mostly white, some blue, and patches of yellow, and every once in a while, some green vegetation. That is a quote and a half, isn't it? It's interesting, isn't that yellow? I, I suppose that's um, I suppose that's deserts, isn't it? Mostly white. Yeah, well, the clouds in it, it's, it's covered in clouds, isn't it? Lots of clouds and polar ice caps. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. I was thinking, what's the yeah. white bits? But of course, it's <laughs> quite a lot of white. It's quite a lot of white, which is lucky because, of course, the white actually reflects a lot of the solar radiation back into space. Oh, thank goodness. Which is why you don't want your polar ice caps to go missing. No. It's what's known as a, a reverse feedback loop. 
it doesn't sound like it would be good for me. No, well, the hotter it gets, the less ice caps you have, and then therefore the hotter it gets, which means the less ice caps you have, which means the hotter it gets, which means the less ice caps you have. So again, it's, a have to, there, it's a tipping point, Jamie. It's a tipping point. I have to stop you there. Yeah, it's too scary. You've gone into it's robot very mode. Scary. <laughs> That's how I know. <laughs> ding, that ding, ding, ding. I've rebooted. That's how I know that you're more human than human. Indeed. Oh, Jamie, Jamie, Jamie. You know, when this podcast goes out, it will be the 21st of June. Ooh. I remember a few weeks ago we had a, a on this day that nothing happened in space yeah. ever on that day. Yeah. Well, this is like the opposite of that. It was a busy day, wasn't it? Should we go down the list? Yeah, and I love the very first one. 1706 was the birthday, 21st of June, of John Dolland. Now, as people in England will have heard of Dolland because I'll get onto that in a second. Yeah. But he was an English optician and astronomer, and he was the first person to patent the achromatic doublet. Uh, in, in some ways, he was better than Newton at, at, um, at lens making. So, like telescopes with ac- an acrobatic an achromatic doublet means that you've got a lens that that bends light equally across all the spectrum. Because one of the problems with just a normal lens is that it bends light, but by different amounts. Okay. So if you if you're so if you're looking at it, certain colours will be in focus and other colours won't be in focus. So that's the problem with cheap camera lenses. Often, it's when you take a a photo, yeah. particularly uh, like telephoto lens, like we were t- saying earlier on. The reason why they're very expensive is because you have to bend all the light at the same amount. Right. So you have to use these a- achromatic doublets. And uh, Dolland, yes, the English optician, uh, born on this day, was was the invent. Well, he was the perfecter of this particular technique and uh, patented it and made lots of money, and so much money, in fact, that you could still buy glasses from Dolland and Aitchinson. I'm sure you remember I them. I know them very until well. Until, two, yeah, 2015. But, of course, now they're called Boots. Oh. So Boots sort of rebranded Dolland and Aitchinson. But, yeah, so that's a, a historical name that's now no longer on our high street. Well, good work, John. Thanks for mm, the glasses. Mm-hmm. So in 1823, who was that? Oh, wasn't that J.C.? JC, <laughs> yeah, who who the, the who the listeners will know as Jean Jaconac. Jaconac. Are we pronouncing that right? Oh God knows. Almost Jacconnec. certainly not. Jaconac. Well, French astronomer Matt and discovered the comet most likely the cause of the uh, Eta Arrhenides. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And six asteroids, including well, surely your favourite Matt, mm-hmm. thirty nine Letitia. Letitia. <laughs> I believe that's pronounced. <laughs> <laughs> the Roman, oh the Roman goddess. I'm having a bear, aren't I? English people are rubbish at this kind of stuff. Yeah, we're not great. Um, or is it just me? Uh, you know these like meteor showers. Oh yeah. Just in case you didn't know, it's because the Earth is tra- traveling through the tail left by a comet. Yes. So, so that particular meteor shower is caused by the comet that Jean Jacques discovered. Matt, what's your what's the most you've seen in a meteor shower? I once saw 53 in the same night. You saw 53 meteors yeah. in, the, in the same yeah. night. That's that's pretty good. I, I think I saw a similar sort of number when I was on a beach in France and I took young Arthur and we saw some amazing ones. One of them was was a very, very long and very bright one that came in with lots of different colours. Wow. And it was like, wow. Yeah, it was really good. 
But it's it's great, isn't it, when you're in a very dark oh. dark sky and you can lie. The, the key is to find somewhere to lie, actually lie down, so yeah. that you're not breaking your neck to look. That's at them. it. And get keep warm, keep warm when when it's a cold. Part I was of the I was in a sleeping bag in on on a folded down deck chair drinking hot chocolate. Oh well, to see that it's literally the ultimate. That's glory. Try it with your binoculars next time. Ah, oh, I used my binoculars at the weekend to look at the beautiful moon that was out, nearly a full moon. Mm-hmm. So good. Did you use it to look at Jupiter? Nah, I couldn't see Jupes. Uh, you couldn't see Jupiter because, yeah, Jupiter was out in full glory oh, with the moon the other day. And, uh, yeah, with with my binoculars, I can just about make out the moons of uh, Jupiter. I just love it. I was looking yeah, at the yeah. moon and thinking, hmm, 2024, is there going to be boots? But we'll come on to that later. Yeah, yeah. No is the answer. But anyway, 1860, <laughs> 1845, we have Arthur Cowperaniard, English astrophysicist and astronomer, who distinguished himself by writing up solar eclipses. So he wrote the really, really big compendiums of solar uh, eclipses. Yes. But he also studied the nature of nebulas, star clusters, the stellar universe, the sun and the moon. So he had a, he was very sophisticated. Totally as, was. Astrophysicist and astronomer of his day. Well, what about 1863? Max Wall. I mean, this is a giant of astronomy, this one. German astronomer and academic, uber astrophotographer. Because he's German, you see. So he won a competition. Yeah, with E.E. Bernard of Bernard Star fame. Who would observe the return of Halley's Comet first? Mm. And he did. April 1910, he he won that competition against his friend. He must have been his friend because they did a lot of work together. Do you know dark nebulas, Jamie? I do, big time. Herschel was describing them as holes in space or holes in the sky. It was Max Wolf who said, no, they're fine dust, so you can't see what's behind them. So he was the first person to point out that these dark nebulas were actually massive, opaque dust clouds. Double legend. Uh, And Max Wolf is a good name, isn't it, Matt? It's a strong name. Max Wolf. Wolf. Uh, yeah, so he even gave Carl Zeiss, another of his friends, but Carl Zeiss, yes, he invented the planetarium from a discussion with uh, Max Wolf. He discovered loads of comets, supernova remnants, asteroids, um, minor planets, just absolutely tons and tons of stuff. But what you shouldn't do is confuse him with Wolf Rayetstars, which is actually a, a guy called Charles Wolf. So next up, 1915, Matt, we have Wilhelm Gliese. Gleeser, German soldier and astronomer, uh, died in 1993, known for his catalogue of nearby stars, originally published in 1957 and again in 1969. Now famous, though, Matt, because of exoplanets mm-hmm. around Gleeser stars, like the Gleeser 581G, as I know you know. Yeah, well, absolutely. I think it's like you wouldn't have seen the name Gleeser. Wilhelm Gleiser, without the fact that, yes, a lot of exoplanets that, that we talk about, the ones that could be super-Earths and things yes. like that, around are around stars that have been catalogued by Wilhelm Gleiser, so they're known as Gleiser 581G. Absolutely, and let's... It's, it's one of the famous ones, yeah. Well, talking of famous, let's not forget mm-hmm. Herbert Friedman, mm-hmm. American physicist and astronomer, uh, born 1816, died uh, 2000. Aspiring artist who grew up to be a pioneer in using sounding rockets to study the sun. 
Now, here's a really interesting one. In 1919, on this day, Admiral Ludwig von Reuter scuttled the German fleet at Scarpa Flow in Orkney, Scotland. Oh, yeah. The nine soldiers that died in that were the last people to die in World War One. But since that event, there have been 1,900 nuclear tests at least. And because of things like the Manhattan Project, etc., um, it means that the atmosphere is slightly more radioactive than it used to be. When you make steel, you take iron and you just pass loads and loads and loads of the atmosphere over the top of it to burn out all the impurities. But that does mean that you have a slightly higher background radiation level in the steel that you make. So pure or low background steel is harvested from the ships that are at the bottom of Scarpa Flow. So some of those ships, they literally dive down and, and get the steel from those because they're low background steel. Now, why are we talking about this? Because some of the spacecraft, like Voyager and stuff like that, have got such sensitive instruments to radiation, of course, if you're studying, say, the Van Allen belts mm. or other forms of radiation, you don't want the steel itself to be radioactive. So it's it's there's a chance, and I couldn't quite get to the bottom of this, but I, I know a lot of kind of medical equipment and some satellite equipment is made from this Scarpa Flow fleet. Yeah. But it's quite hard to say whether, if definitively whether Voyager was actually some of the parts were made from Scarpa Flow. God, that is. But mad. definitely some of the de definitely some uh, satellites were made from that sunken fleet. That is super interesting. And I'll tell you what, Matt. Talking mm. of radiation, just on a side tangent, have you watched mm -hmm. the series Chernobyl yet? No, no, Ooh. I still haven't watched it. No, I've got. I've, I'm I do throwing want it to out there. Well, it might just be the best TV series ever made. There, I've said it. I've said it. No, oh, wow. Okay. Well, I'm going to start watching it. Talking of radiation and talking of Russians. Yeah. Um, although, of course, uh, Chernobyl, Chernobyl is in the Ukraine. It is. Um, uh, 1958 is the birthday of a mega hero who's not particularly famous, is Gennady Padolka. Okay. Who is, of course, the current holder of the most time ever spent in space. So he's done 878 days, five flights, and nine spacewalks. That's a lot. With Malenchenko, who's who's now retired, 50 days behind him. But there is a chap called Caleri who's a little bit behind, but is still active. So he may Go on, get up to the same sort of thing. Catch up. But I. But it's all the Russians. Man, the Russians spent ages in space. They, they must have love so, space, man. They love the space. So I think they must have a lot of information. So. Arguably, the greatest astronaut of all time was born on today, Gennady Padalka. Matt, why are the Russians so good at, at this this thing called space? Why are they so good at it? Well, they used to be a superpower. Unfortunately, their powers of being great at space are waning. Are you saying they need to under, bring back the Soviet Union? Under No, but um, under the corrupt, <laughs> hideous regime of Vladimir Putin. Yeah. It's not flourishing. It's not great, is it? No. I'll tell you what is great. What? 1965, the man we opened with. Yeah. Our man Yang. Yang Lai Wei. Chinese general, pilot mm -hmm. and astronaut. Uh, in October 2003, he became the first person sent into space by the Chinese space program. Uh, the mission, Shenzhou 5, made, the chi made China the third country to independently send humans to space. Although the first Chinese citizen in space 
uh, Yang is not the first person of Chinese origin in space because Shanghai-born Taylor Wang flew on space shuttle mission STS-51B in 1985. And you'll like this, Matt. He ate specially designed packets of shredded pork with garlic, Kung Pao chicken, and ate treasure rice. I want to know what ate treasure rice is. I think I want to eat that for my lunch. Mm. Um, Along Mm -hmm. with Chinese herbal tea, uh, Yang's capsule was supplied with a gun, a knife, and a tent in case he landed (laughs) in the wrong place. Wow. (laughs) He had bleeding from the lip after a really hard landing, bless him. Uh, Mm -hmm. And the asteroid 21064, Yang Laiwei. So also not to be confused with the female basketball legend of the exact same name. (laughs) Yes, funny, isn't it, that there should be like a really famous astronaut well, basically the most legendary Chinese astronaut who's not allowed to go back into space in the same way that they didn't allow Yuri Gagarin to go back into space because it was like, mm, we can't risk this legend. Um, that you should have the exact same name as a female basketball-playing legend well, from China as I well. I think they've both slam-dunked into my heart. There we go. <laughs> That's beautiful, Jamie. What a lovely, tenuous link that was. Your favourite, Jamie, 2004. Oh, the what? now lost spaceship one. It became the first privately funded space plane to achieve spaceflight. Congratulations! And what about two thousand and six? We've mentioned them on the show before. Nix and Hydra, the newly discovered moons of Pluto, are officially given those names. Yeah, not so boring, are they? Loads happened, didn't it? Lo- loads of great people. Hell of a day. Even if it was just Padalka and Laiway, that would be a that would be pretty good, wouldn't it? So but with Max Wolf and all that lot in there as oh, well. Oh, it's ridiculous. I mean, clearly something in, in the air. Gleason. Clearly something in the air on the 21st of June. Uh, what about yeah. what about our mate Elon? Drink. What's he been up to? Well, I'd say he's been a bit of a wally out there on Twitterville. So he tweeted he said, saying did... <laughs> he was deleting his account, right? Yeah, he no, he no, he tweeted that he deleted his account, which is quite <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> which is doesn't really kind of make any sense whatsoever, and he hadn't. And then he changed his name to daddy.com. What the hell? Yeah. And then he changed it back again. And then and this was all because he 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 was tweeting and he used someone's artwork and then someone said, "Oh, you should really name the artist." And it was like, "Oh no, I can do what the hell I want." <laughs> and then someone said, yeah, it's probably best to sort of name check the people that sort of did it. A bit like name checking the founders of Tesla. And I think that was the sort of, that was your kind of touchy moment. I mean, this could be libelous and I don't, I'm not saying this is fact, but Matt, do you think he's smoking quite a lot of the purple kush and just getting getting on Twitter and going for it? <laughs> I think, yeah, I just, I, he just, what the hell would a CEO of several major companies, owner of these companies, just go crazy just, on Twitter? It, I mean, it but it's exactly like Trump as well. Having a isn't bit it? of a laugh, it's, like, it's weird. Yeah, it's just the narcissism of it that's just a little bit frightening. Yeah. But in, in good news, anyway, in good news, the SpaceX Falcon Heavy is on the pad. Static fire test. And it won't be long till we see the launch of. Uh, this military payload that it's taking up, but also loads of CubeSats for NASA, NOAA, and the thing that we talked about with Harriet a long time ago, the Planetary Society yeah. Solar Sail. <gasps> Get in. So, yeah, that, well, so that I'll must tell be you what, very exciting. I'll tell you what else society. we should see, because that test is expected today. Tonight, 
we should see mm-hmm. an Arian 5 launch. Yes. Get in, Issa. That, yeah. Yeah, there's not many of them left now. So we're sort of... They've, they've made so much progress with the Ariane 6 launch facility that I think we'll see Ariane 6 uh, not too far away now. So we might see an Electron, Atlas V, and even a Launcher 1, which, if successful, could pave the way for a, drumroll mat UK launch in 2020. Wow. O-M-G. Yeah. If, yeah, Virgin Orbit do a Launcher 1... Uh, launch this month. That'd be very exciting. Oh, please let it happen. Please let it happen. Please let it happen. Jamie, do you know I said I was going to defend Trump? Yeah, but please don't do it too much because he's still an absolute <laughs> munching. <laughs> well, the thing about, the thing about Trump is, yes, he's a buffoon, and so there's no point make that literally is no point twisting his words to make them sound worse than they are. Yeah. He doesn't need help to make there. a point because because no because he, he he says so many things that are ridiculous. You can just use like normal facts, but I noticed that lots of people were sort of taking lots of things he said out of not out of context, but just basically misquoting him to make him one, sound I like. I know a, the one you're about to say, and I I have to admit, I totally agree with you on this. Yeah, well, the, well, the one well, the one where he said about. Obviously, the one where he said about the the, uh, the moon being part of Mars, and everyone he's so thick. It was clearly he doesn't mean that, and and it's just like all you're doing is emboldening Trump's supporters because yeah. it's like yeah yeah that 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 the, yes the press are against Trump and look they'll even lie and twist his I words to make him seem like an idiot. We don't it's need so... to, we don't need to stoop to <sighs> making anything up. He's already no. said enough to you know sink the Titanic with ridiculous things. So yeah, let's so, not but, jump on stuff that clearly isn't true. Yeah. So the headlines of of what he said. So what he actually said was, "We will push for with new medical frontiers. We will come up with the cures to many, many problems, to many, many, many diseases, including cancer <laughs> and others. And we're getting closer all the time. We'll eradicate eradicate AIDS in America once and for all. And we're very close. We will lay the foundations for landing American astronauts on the surface of Mars. Now it's it was reported as." we will land American astronauts on the surface of Mars. And, of course, everyone on Twitter is like, oh, what an idiot, as if that's going to happen in his presidency. It's like, he never said that. He said, we will lay the foundation for landing American astronauts on the surface of Mars. And he's been clear on that all along, that landing on the moon, literally every time he's mentioned it, he's always said that it's part of getting humankind to Mars. A stepping stone, yeah. He's actually been pretty consistent on that point. Don't knock people down on a lie because he says so many other things that are so ridiculous. that we As you said, it will only dilute mm. the hard facts of what he does say. So just not necessary. You know, he is trying to lay down the foundations of, well, I don't know whether he's trying to do it, but the programme Artemis is laying down the foundation for landing American astronauts on the surface of Mars. That That is its point, And that's the point that he's always said that they should be emphasising. Yeah. Probably rightly so. Yeah. Good old Trump. Good old Trump. Ah, <laughs> hey. oh, Jamie, I th- this one's gone in very, very late into the notes. I, you, you may have seen me typing it I just did. a second ago. So yes, Jelly Sock pointed me into this uh, in, in this direction. It is something I'd spotted uh, in the in in my news feed. Yeah. But yes, a, a star named after the Discovery Team leader Bonard J. Teagarden, uh-huh. and if Teagarden isn't one of the best surnames ever, I don't know what is. Uh, Teagarden star. <laughs> uh, 
yeah, which lies 12.5, yeah, that is a great name, 12.5 light years away. An international team led by the University of Göttingen has found two planets close to Earth mass orbiting Teagarden star, Ooh. which is a tiny, tiny, tiny red dwarf star. Uh, that was only discovered, even though it's only 12.5 light years away, it was only discovered in 2003. And that was by scouring near-Earth asteroid tracking data collected over five years. And these two planets, this is how tiny the star is, the two planets have orbital periods, i.e. their years last 4.91 days and 11.4 days. Wow. So that they are, I mean, they're much closer than Mercury. Is, Dude, we would be bare old. Yeah, <laughs> we'd be really old. It only burns this uh, Tea Garden star at two thousand seven hundred Celsius, and it's ten percent the mass of the Sun. Uh, and it's the first Earth mass planet that's been found around an ultra cool dwarf. Sounds like me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yes, uh, Tea Garden Star is eight billion years old. So uh-huh. there's a good chance that if these places are habitable, they're in the habitable zone, and if Tea Garden Star is a bit stable after so many years, then life has had a very long time to develop on there. Really has. Mm, mm. Yeah, uh, Tea Garden Star is so small; it's only just above the limit for brown dwarfs. It's sixty times or over 60 times Jupiter's mass. And uh, here's the really interesting bit. If aliens were on the planet, they could see Earth transit our sun. So if if they have a civilization that's also looking for transiting planets, then they could see the Earth transit the sun. Now, they would see that in 2044, and obviously it would have happened to us in 2032. So in 2032, if we sent a signal out... They would receive it in 2044 and get a signal back to us by 2056. And we might both still be alive by then. Oh, that is a possibility. Let's hope so. So, yeah, we, we, we might send a signal out in 2032 and then hear, uh, yeah, what do you want in 2056? God, this is exciting stuff. Super exciting, isn't it? Well, I'll tell you what else is exciting. Only how the solar system ended up with heavy elements. Oh, my God, Jamie. This this is one of my favourite things that I've ever seen. How good's this? I'm, literally, I'm finding this actually mind-blowing, that science is how much we know about space now, how the solar system ended up with the heavier elements. So you're familiar, aren't you, with the, the, the famous Carl Sagan phrase about how we're all made of star stuff. Big time. And that, that comes from the idea that stars end their lives in, this, in these massive explosions, supernovas. And that's when their cores collapse and then it all bounces back. All those heavier elements are released from that explosion. But we'll get on to, actually, that's not quite the full story in a minute, because a new paper out in Nature, which is a letter to Nature by Imre Bartos mm. in Shazbolksmarker, again, very incredibly hard names, called A Nearby Neutron Star Merger Explains the Actinide Abundances in the Early Solar System. And so reading this paper, it's it's and having a little bit of help from uh, much cleverer people online than me to, 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 to translate it, um, yeah. it's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. It's a refined version of the stuff that we're made from star stuff. 
It's a refined version of that hypothesis. So just in case you want to know what actinides are, they're, they're the 15 metallic chemical elements from 89 to 103. Yes. So that's actium, thorium, uranium, neptunium, plutonium, americium, curium, all the way up to Laurentium, we'll have to including get a song Californium and fit, Einsteinium. Fit yeah, exactly. So yes, and and everyone has always uh, said that a lot of these, uh, particularly certain isotopes of those heavy metals, are made from a thing called the R process. So we could have R process as space word of the week. Oh yeah, yes, um, yeah. So R process is a mechanism that creates these heavier elements um so you have basically neutron rich stable isotopes made from from the r process rapid neutron capture hmm. it's like three candidates for where r process can happen yes and that's in supernova type 2 supernova and neutron star mergers oh. but of course they have been made in nuclear weapons so in, in some of the some of these isotopes were actually only first kind of discovered and looked at after nuclear explosions. Yeah. Um, so in a supernova explosion, as the star explodes, some some of the core elements are blasted out. So you've got all this kind of iron and nickel that's come out, that's blasted out, uh, but it's come with a big sea of neutrons as well that get that made in that inferno as the as this supernova explodes and some of those neutrons are obviously whizzing past these um these core elements and 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 the neutrons basically hit and uh, build up the heavier and heavier elements of the periodic table now the crux there is that the neutrons are captured faster than than the than they can decay and so you can build up these very heavy nuclei which are quite you know, these are not very stable elements. They have half-lives, which is basically radioactive decay. Yes. So that's what makes them radioactive. But you're able to build up these things because this 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 happens very, very quickly. So the neutrons are added onto these nuclei very, very quickly and, and build up these much bigger elements. But there's two lines of evidence that suggest that that's not enough in a supernova. So if you look at supernova simulations, they don't produce enough of the heavier elements that we see. And actually, when you look at some of the supernova that are out there, when you look at spectrally what they're like, you don't actually see much of this heavy material coming out of them. Noel Gallagher so said that there was uh, some champagne involved. Is that true? Uh there, I, I suppose, in a way, he's right because some of the some of the chemicals that are in champagne probably are yeah. made in supernova. Well, exactly. Well, in fact, they definitely are. Well, he knows what so, he's talking yes, about. Yes, correct. Well, well, as we know, Liam Gallagher is a is arguably one of the greatest intellects of our era. <laughs> he's up there with Bertrand Russell and people like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so uh, way back. Jamie, on Podcast 51, it doesn't seem that long ago, doesn't. but that's a long time ago. Back on Podcast 51, we talked about, that was the week where multi-messenger physics started. So that was when LIGO detected the merger of two super-dense stellar corpses, I remember the neutron it well. stars, in the galaxy NGC 4993, located 130 million light-years from Earth yes. in Hydra. 
And the reason why it was a multi-messenger thing was LIGO detected it, uh, gravitational waves, and therefore we're able to point the normal telescopes that, uh, that observe invisible light and X-rays and, and gamma rays, etc., and point them at where this was happening. And they actually saw the spectrum of light was full of R-process heavy elements, okay. unlike when you point them at supernova. Yes. So basically there, there's like massive proof that these uh, colliding neutron stars are releasing all these heavy elements. So in an exciting and almost ironic way, it seems increasingly likely that materials used to power Voyager, Cassini and Curiosity, i.e. the, the RTGs, these radioisotopes that actually power those amazing NASA machines come from neutron star collisions. That is mad, isn't it? Yeah. The circle is now so, complete. Yeah. So I just, I just explained briefly, because the, 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 how neutron stars make these um, heavier elements is, is insane. Um, so as the neutron stars sort of circle in on each other, yes. remember that these are so massive, they're almost collapsing into black holes as it, as it is, right? Mm. But as they collide, obviously that's it. The core of it will become a black hole. And at that point you think, well, this accretion disk, how on earth is anything going to escape from the accretion disk, mm. uh, let alone these uh, heavy elements? How is it going to escape from all the material that's now superheated and swirling around this newly formed black hole from this ridiculously cataclysmic event? Mm. But some of the neutrons... Uh, that were nice and stable when they were in a neutron star, obviously they've now become incredibly unstable. Yes. And when neutrons, they basically decay via beta decay into protons, and they do that by releasing neutrinos and electrons, right? Uh-huh. But in this in, in ridiculously intense sea of neutrinos, and, it, 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 and it's this neutrino sea that there's so many of these neutrinos, it acts as like a sea of neutrinos, and these core elements these nucleons and are surfing away from the black hole on this sea of neutrinos and in the meantime the neutrons that haven't decayed in this swirling accretion disk of matter are bombarding the nuclei that are surfing on the neutrino waves and of course that's uh, how again this r process so the neutrons are smashing into the nuclei and building up these heavier elements while it's wait, uh, while it's surfing out on the on the sea of neutrinos, helping them to escape to victory. That is mad. It sounds like yeah. a beautiful thing to do, surfing on a sea of neutrinos. Yeah, and but what's the most incredible thing about this paper, right? Is using this kind of statistical analysis about basically neutron stars are incredibly rare events, uh -huh. right? And you would think that. These very, very short-lived elements that are being made, these very, very he heavy elements, it'd be quite hard to work out where they came from. Um, but the good thing is you can look at the sort of daughter products of those heavy elements in meteorites, which, of course, they have been doing. We look at meteorites that are landing on the Earth and they contain the sort of daughter products of, of the early universe, the early, sorry, the early solar system and, 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 how, and what the sort of stellar nebula that we're made from yes. was made from, right? And they've been able to, this, these researchers have been able to look at that and work out 
that it's highly likely that these he heavy elements were made by a single event, a single neutron star merger. And they know roughly how far away it is and when it happened. It's just insane, <laughs> so isn't it? They worked out, yeah, no, this is it's ridiculous, isn't it? So, yeah, it, they reckon it's about, it happened about 300 parsecs away from our pre-solar nebula and approximately 80 million years before the formation of the solar system. So neutron stars smash together, create a black hole accreting disk. That then sails out on the neutrino surf, smashes into the pre-solar nebula. That pre-solar nebula is now seeded with all these heavy elements and that goes on to create our solar system and potentially... That one event, that neutron star merger, is one of the reasons why we have life on Earth, intelligent life on Earth, and we've got plutonium and curium and all these kind of things. Isn't, well, that, isn't that just an incredible story? It is incredible, but it makes me feel a little bit sad, Matt. Do you know why? Oh, because in a roundabout be way, you're suggesting that Black Sabbath mm. didn't invent heavy metal. See, I'm going to disagree with you. Black Sabbath didn't invent heavy metal. They invented hard rock. Who invented heavy metal? Judas Priest. Oh, I knew you'd say that. They're the only heavy metal band. Hell I, just, for leather. I think I think maybe you could argue that Iron Maiden are a heavy metal band, but no, Judas Priest. But but whatever, it was invented in Birmingham. I think we can agree with that. <laughs> Defo, love it. Well, that's incredible. It's it's absolutely amazing, isn't it? And 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 yeah, I suppose if scientists go off and they concentrate on other of these isotopes they can look into more studies and maybe even start to hone in much more on what that nearby neutron star merger event was. I, that brings me beautifully onto our next uh, feature, Matt. I'd like to talk about oh. a merger between NASA mm -hmm. and Astrobotics. Okay, yeah, yeah. So if you remember back to Podcast 77, mm -hmm. uh, cast your mind back, uh, we mentioned no. Astrobotics as they had a contract with Goon Hilly and Surrey Satellites. Do you remember? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was something to, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, so Goon Hilly and Surrey Satellites, I think, are going to help them with their tracking on the way to, on the, way to the moon. Absolutely. Well, they've just secured their contract with NASA um, to be, uh, I think it's one of three independent companies, isn't it? And, um, mm -hmm. and they are one of the commercial lunar payload services uh, to ferry science instruments to the lunar surface. But I don't want I know you to get upset, Matt, because you, you're upset about the moon and NASA, aren't you? No, no, not at all. I think, well, the, well this is the problem, really. Artemis kind of was threatening the CLIPS program, as it's called. Yes. The, the, the commercial lunar payload services. Because it's like, well, where does CLIPS fit into Artemis? I'm still pretty, I'm still pretty unsure how, it's, how it fits in. I mean, Steve Clark from the uh, NASA Science Division said, um, these CLIPS providers are really leading the way for our return to the moon as part of the Artemis program. And these are precursor missions prior to us landing the first woman and next man on the surface of the moon in 2024. Mm. But I don't see how like completely different architecture and different launch vehicles, etc., really have that much to do with it, other than I suppose you can see roughly what's on the surface of the moon. It, it's, it's, it's a little bit tenuous. It is a little bit. I still think they need quite a whack of money. What do you reckon? Um, yeah. 
Well, they, well, how much did they get from NASA? They got they they got they shared some huge sum of money, didn't they? Yeah, I can't remember the exact amount. I'll have to go back and have a look. But it was quite a bit. Well, talking of money, Matt, uh, mm-hmm. I went on to Astro uh, Astrobotics website, mm-hmm. and they said on their in the front page, it came out as a little banner, and it said one point two million pounds per kilo. So I was thinking, Matt, what mm-hmm. knowing that price? What would you send up? And I wondered how much an interplanetary podcast mug weighs. It's not a kilogram, but but it's going to cost us quite a bit of money. Probably not the best use of our money, right? Well, there's not much science to be gained from sending an interplanetary yeah, podcast mug to the moon. Yeah, but people are still going to need to drink tea. Oh, that's true. In the tea garden on moon. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. I absolutely love it. Oh. Well, I'll tell you what. We need to talk about juice. Mm. Now, you know I get excited about an icy moon, don't you? I, we're, we're all excited about icy moons. Ah, it's so exciting, isn't it? Uh, so, Juice, uh, yeah, so the Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer, or aka Juice, will ride into space on an Ariane launch vehicle, um, confirmed uh, in June uh, at the International Paris Air Show. Um, so, Matt, this is going to be, I, I think it's three years uh, making mm. detailed observations of uh, the giant gaseous planet Jupiter and in-depth studies of three of its largest moons and potentially, and this is where I get excited, mm. ocean-bearing satellites, Ganymede, Europa and Callisto. Yeah, I, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to coincide. 2022 is the launch, isn't it? And it is, it's yes. the first of the large... These really huge ESA space missions, the Cosmic Vision Program. That's right. That runs from 2015 to 2025. So it's really exciting. I mean, Juice is going to be an amazing, an amazing uh, science program. And, it, and, and it, of course, it completely overlaps with NASA's Europa Clipper mission, which is also launching in 2022. Yeah. Hopefully. Um, so also, Airbus Defence and Space is developing and building the Juice spacecraft. Yeah, so so it may bits of it will obviously be built here in probably Stevenage in the UK, and or I mean Airbus is so huge, it's such a big company, and you know includes things like Ariane is owned by Airbus, so it's not really surprising that they got the <laughs> got the uh, eight. But there's going to be something like eighty companies involved in in this. By the way, would you like a That's quote, a- Matt, from Gunther Hassinger, ESA's director of uh, science? Yeah, go on then. Uh, where's he from, Gunther? Do we think he's German? Gunther. Yeah, I reckon Gunther Hassinger. It must be German. Jules? Who knows? It's the first large class mission in our cosmic vision program and of prime importance for investigating the habitability of potential ocean worlds beyond our own. I'm, I'm slipping into French, but that's okay. Uh, we are yeah. delighted to confirm it will have a flying start with Ariane launch vehicle, setting it on course to fulfil its scientific goals in the Jupiter system. Beautiful. Because it might be one of the first launches on an Ariane 6, although it might still be on an Ariane 5. Well... So it's a bit confusing there, isn't it? I I wanted to... um, Now, talking of icy moons, Mm. a slight tangent, but you know... You know how much I love Europa, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, they've discovered, Matt, that the on the surface, uh, so the Hubble telescope has been spying 
uh, on mm-hmm. it for quite a while. And it's identified and confirmed the presence of sodium chloride, otherwise known as table salt. And that's what makes our oceans salty. So that, Matt, uh, gives uh, you know further evidence to the fact that researchers are saying that it could mean that Europa's oceans are hydrothermically active, which potentially means volcanic activity, which potentially means life, question mark? Just saying. Yeah, it, it, I, I do like the, the phrase sodium chloride is what makes the earth sea salty. That would be a bit like saying sugar <laughs> is what makes the earth sea sweet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very exciting, which, which, which is why, of course, missions like juice are Essential. so so exciting much i am much more excited about this than i am about artemis although god if we really did have people on the surface of the moon in 2024 it would be very exciting well that would be very exciting i'll I tell you what else is exciting matt is mm-hmm. uh the website of the interplanetary podcast where if you enjoyed this episode you can go to find out not just our social media and our blogs and stuff like that but how mm-hmm. you can support us more, possibly becoming mm. a patron. This website is www.interplanetary.org.uk. I, I suggest people check it out. They should definitely check it out or check out uh, patreon.com forward slash interplanetary. Matt, if I want to give a five-star review on iTunes, can I do that? It would be, I think, not only can you do it, you should do it. Oh, I think that's what you Lord. should do. Yeah. So, yes, you should join our 60 other patrons, uh, of whom I'm going to read you a little list of, of the really amazing ones. Here we go. So we've got Bob Hodges. Legend. Kaylee. Absolute conqueror. John Benak. God amongst men. Karel Sim. Is a champion. Julio. A prayer. Exemplar. Darren Fuchs. Master. Justin Roberts. A man of distinguished valour. Rob Annabel. Brave warrior Rob. Christopher Andreasen. Man of courage and truth. Now, I hope I get this right. Auden Vala. Absolute knight amongst men. Anthony Peggs. Man of the hour. And Matt Gilliland. The hero we all need. I absolutely... Love those human beings. I'll They've tell you been... what, if you want to join those kings and queens, and if you want to nestle in between our icy moons, then join up. <laughs> and the great thing about that whole bunch of people is is that they're really engaged with us. They help us write the show. They've given us some great uh, little tips in the in the Discord channel. So yeah, come and come and join in and 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 be part of the family. Just We'd come love and you. gather love around the you. fire, sing a song. Yeah, you don't have to do that. I absolutely love it. Right, Matt, what are you up to now? I'm going to the doctors. <laughs> well, I hope you have. Uh, yeah, I hope your test results are clear. And just remember, hairy palms are curable. <laughs> but Donald Trump is going to cure everything, so it doesn't of course really matter. He is. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. All done. All Have sorted. a good weekend, Spotcats. Bye bye, Spotcats. See you soon. Cheerio. Bye. bye.